This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. It felt like there was so much excitement out of the starting gate. And then in some ways, maybe the reality hit that it was really an industry in its infancy. And now trying to get the energy back, I think, on both the grower side, but also, you know, on the research side too. Welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your host, Jerry Clark, the agricultural agent in Chippewa County with the Division of Extension with UW-Madison. My co-host today is Carl Dooley, agricultural agent in Buffalo County. Hey, Carl, how's everything today? Hey, thanks, Jerry. It's uh, well, uh, We're looking at a, a white background today with a high of 25, so things are great um, here in, in western Wisconsin. Yeah, we're going to start to see the uh, deer hunting season start here very shortly. So I think most of the crops are off. And uh, as we talk industrial hemp today, it's a crop that's probably been off the ground for a few months now, but it's always good to kind of check in to see how the growing season went and uh, kind of provide updates, uh, what's happening uh, from a regulation side of things and, and those types of things. So uh, our guests today then are Phil Alberti. Uh, Phil is a research program manager with the Department of Horticulture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So good morning, Phil. Hey, good morning. And with us today uh, as a repeat uh, guest is uh, Dr. Heather Darby. She's an extension agronomist with the University of Vermont. Welcome again, Heather. Thanks for having me. It's All white right. here too. Oh, that's good. got some snow as well. Yep, I think it's been snowing since Monday. Today's uh, Wednesday, okay. and so it's been, I don't think it's stopped. There's been, a, I think, a flurry 20 out yeah. of 24 hours. So it's Now, we, this was our first accumulated snow. Some places got about seven, eight inches. So. Yeah, I got one plot left to measure yet, so <laughs> I'm hoping that it doesn't cover <laughs> too much ground yet. So. Yeah, you got your broom out, Jerry, so you yep. can get yeah. that taken. I'm going to have to we sweep were... it off. We were combining yesterday, trying to finish some corn before the snow. So. Sure. Well, Jerry, we always should mention though that that uh, you know Phil's at UW Madison, and Heather does have some background at Wisconsin and yeah. UW Madison. So it's not really like welcome home, but it's like welcome back. Uh, to, yeah, to alumni, alumni. There we go. And just to be clear, uh, we did. Uh, trade for a draft choice to be named later for Phil to come from the University of Illinois. So Phil has just uh, joined us, what, <laughs> Phil, about a month, a couple months ago, maybe? Or how long you been uh, on board? Six weeks. Six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah. Okay. Wow. An eye. yeah. I heard he had to cross the border at midnight, but we got him now. So <laughs> so. Well, great. And uh, Phil, uh, coming from Illinois, uh, from the hemp projects down there, are you planning to bring some of that same type of uh, leadership up here then? Yeah, well, you know, first off, uh, Wisconsin was my alma mater, and I'm from Milwaukee, so it's good to be back home in in both ways, uh, which is, is really nice. And and yeah, as far as the projects, I mean, the idea is really to keep as much of that intact as possible. We've spent the last, you know, almost four years building these networks across the Midwest for a variety of research projects and collaborations across 
you know, state lines, universities, and we want to hold on to that as much as possible. So if anything, hoping that the, um, the placement here at Wisconsin will allow us to do more, if anything. Okay. And we should, uh, uh, also, you're working directly with Dr. Shelby Ellison, correct? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've, I've known uh, Dr. Ellison for, for a few years now, and we've worked together pretty closely on a lot of the hemp projects that, you know, we're bringing here to uh, the university. Um, but Shelby, uh, Dr. Ellison will be my, my primary boss, if okay. you will. I'm working in her lab, uh, but she's doing a, a lot of different hemp production research uh, in genetics and breeding, which will allow me to focus on the agronomy and variety evaluation, which is really more of my strong suit. So uh, just kind of, you know, bringing together things that we both do well and hoping to really take the research that we're doing here up a notch. Yeah, thanks. And I think from uh, Carl and I aren't your boss, but we'll send you plenty of work too. So I'm glad <laughs> to have you on board. So. It's always good to have the uh, backseat driver bosses. Is that yeah, what they're yeah, called? Yeah. <laughs> right. Whoa, haven't been called that for quite a while. I don't know. But but I think it's great to have Phil and it's always great to have Heather back. Heather's probably started research on hemp before most of us have, mm -hmm. I think, at least a year or two before most of us. And bringing that background, I think, is really, really important. Yeah, yeah I think we yeah. all see Heather as a leader in, in this oh, industry. Oh, well, that's so. good. We're plugging ahead. I think, as everybody knows, there was sort of this boom, you know, this excitement, and then just this sort of bust. And now trying to kind of amp back up, get the energy back, I think, on the, I would say both the grower side, but also, you know, on the research side too. I think it felt like there was so much excitement out of the starting gate. And then you know, I feel like in some ways, maybe the reality hit that it was really an industry in its infancy. And now I feel like we're trying to get that momentum going again, you know, with the sort of downturn of the CBD market and kind of thinking about, okay, where, where are we headed with hemp at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Heather and Phil, you can chime in on this, but Heather, just to kind of compartmentalize this between CBD and, and grain or fiber, what's your crystal ball looking like for the, those markets right now? You talked about the boom and bust, but you know, yeah. where do you think we're going to go with this now? Well, probably exactly where we should have started, right? So I, I think we did start out really focused on grain in particular, it felt like the easiest thing to do at the time and, and maybe the most accessible market for farmers. Um, but I think we all knew like, this is a fledgling industry. And when we say that it's just everything, right? Um, the markets and the equipment and the infrastructure and much of the crop that we could produce just needs to be processed before it can make its way to consumer. And that takes a lot of investment. And so, you know, I feel like that investment that could have been happening the last few years was really directed towards this boom in the CBD market. And that really overshadowed fiber and grain. And actually that was a bad thing. I definitely know that. We actually had an oil, hemp oil processing facility move into Vermont the first year we could grow hemp and they left because they couldn't get any farmers to grow grain. Everybody wanted to grow CBD. And so we lost that initial investment in infrastructure. They went out of business right away. So that was really a bummer. So what I, what I see now is we've got to re we have to build markets in these different 
you know, other areas with the grain and fiber. And, um, you know, it gives us in some ways a little breathing room on the research side, I think, because before, you know, we couldn't keep up with CBD. It happened so fast. We didn't have a lot to offer. Um, now I feel like we're, you know, we're sort of in line with how fast infrastructure and markets are building for grain and fiber. And, and that's, you know, I see that's where a lot of our efforts will be moving to and already are for us. And I can echo the, the same sentiments that we were just trying to look at, at so much without having that knowledge or experience. I feel four years in, we finally have a, a grip on how to establish this crop and to grow it well and to get to a point where we can harvest it. And now we're starting to ask those additional questions on the harvesting and processing side. You know, things are starting to come into focus. What the industry needs, what growers need is starting to become a little bit more clear now that we have that experience. But, you know, when everything was moving so fast, we didn't have the luxury of time. We needed to provide answers, you know, yesterday. And we're trying so many different things and just didn't have the experience. So um, as a researcher, as Heather said, just kind of a refocus on what we need to look at. There is opportunities that are currently available now via grant funding at the national and state levels that are starting to make this more of a realistic possibility. And that goes down to the growing and the processing sides where states like Missouri are offering funding to establish a processing center for this industry. But yeah, a, a refocus has definitely happened. And I think you know over the last year or two, really figuring out where we need to spend a lot of our time. And, and do you think that part of it is, is trying to figure out what the standards should be? I had an opportunity to go to Fort Benton, Montana, on a family trip just to see uh, what they're doing at Indy Hemp. And they got some great things going on. They have, they have uh, the processing uh, set up pretty well, it seems to me, taking it and contracting with farmers. But looking at, um, you know, truly what are the standards that they want and also some other companies I've talked with. It doesn't seem like we really have a great handle yet on what are the standards and even more importantly, how are we going to measure that? The quality of bass fiber, the, the I don't know if we really measure quality in herd, but especially the bass fiber. Any ideas on how long that might take our industry or this hemp industry to develop those standards? Uh, I think that feels really true at this moment. We have a a bunch of projects we just applied for funding for to look at hemp fiber quality. Um, for us, there there is a market here as well for farmers that's just opened up. So we have some challenges. The first one is trying to get farmers to grow hemp again or even consider it, um, especially after you know sort of the last disaster many people had. So that's a barrier in itself. But then it's delivering the type of fiber that this company wants that I'm not even sure if they know what that looks like at this time either. Like they wouldn't know how to tell a grower what exactly they want. And so, you know, I, I think it could happen relatively fast, but you know, we need the resources and state cooperation across the country to really be able to deliver on that because there are so many, there are different processing facilities and types and they all have different requirements. And of course, depending on, you know, what, what they're producing, that has a different requirement. And for our farmers, you know, they just have very little, they don't have any knowledge 
right? I shouldn't say they have little, they don't have any. And it's, they don't know, they can be told when to harvest, but to me, it's from that point forward, like then what? And that's, you know, really the questions we're trying to answer, especially in our humid climates. Are we actually gonna be able to field rent this material into a high quality bass fiber that could make textiles? Or are we just gonna be able to make, you know, produce a fiber that can go into plastics or bedding or whatever? So anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, yeah, that, those, that's a great point with the, you know, what do farmers know or not know and, you know, not knowing anything. And I think that's where I've had one farmer tell me at a field day that, well, that's what extension's for. You guys make the right. mistakes, you figure it out. And I think, and Carl and I have joked about this, that, you know, we're finally ahead of the curve on something where <laughs> we've got right. this, we got, we got the production stuff ready. And when the market's ready, we're ready to go, or at least we can at least help help farmers. Because I think one thing we've looked at, kind of back to your quality point, is if, when we, we've we done uh, the, the seeding rate studies, and you get these really pencil thin type uh, stems versus these, you know, that are maybe the, the diameter of a dime or a nickel. And it's like, well, which one do they want? And it's like, well, I don't know. We're just trying to figure out what, what happens when we change the seeding rate. And it, then it varies so much by variety. So a lot to learn yet, but at least we're, yeah. if those are the questions I think farmers are going to have if there's an opportunity to get this uh, off the ground again. Yeah, and I find it really interesting, Heather, what you said about um, can we in our humid climates, because we're pretty similar, Wisconsin and Vermont, yeah. especially where we're at. Um, I asked that question to the folks out in Montana, and they think we're going to be the place that grows high quality fiber because they can't get theirs to ret. They don't have enough moisture. And they right. don't have enough water to irrigate to to irrigate it to get it to ret, and there's no dew because they've been so dry. And this has been five six years that they've been that dry that they 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 were they had it out in the field two months and haven't and it didn't do anything besides change colors. So I I think we got a lot of things to work out between like you said across state lines trying to figure this out is uh, should be challenging, interesting, fun, whatever term you want to use. Yeah, I know with our um, initial reading trials, it just seems like we can go from good to bad really quick. And one of, one of the projects that we're working on now are sort of like, what are the cues? So I, I think about this with our work in hops that we all did a while ago where we all said, well, how, do, how do you know when they're ready to harvest? And the people that have grown hops out west say, well, you just know. And it's like asking a dairy farmer, how do you know when the hay's ready to bale? Well, you just know. So, you know, we're trying to figure out what are those cues with hemp fiber when it's laid down on the ground? You know, are they are there visual cues as we're learning? Is there, you know, any kind of, um, there are some NIR assessments that have been done. Um, you know, are there some kind of cues we can use that are going to help the farmers and ourselves know, okay, now's the time or we're getting close. So that's a little bit of something that we're trying to focus on this year. So Phil, in your case with um, coming from Illinois or what you're early, seeing early on in Wisconsin here, what are those production things that you know, you're working through? I know I've kept caught wind of some of Shelby's work with on the breeding or some of the uh, genetic side of it, but where do you see that headed as in terms of whether it's uh, CBD or with um, for grain or fiber? Well, I think, you know, some of the things that we're going to be focusing on are, you know, large scale farm level 
harvesting, trying to determine which equipment's going to be suited for grain harvesting and trying to experiment with, with various equipment, um, messing around with planting dates and, uh, and, and varieties to try to find a more manageable grain type hemp. So, so what do I mean by that is, you know, we did some experiments this last year and we had planted late with the intention of, of harvesting the, the grain. And we have planted in mid-June and we were hoping that the plants would be about soybean or a tall soybean height. Well, they were 10 to 11 feet tall and we were not able to go through with the soybean header like we had originally planned. So messing around with, you know, evaluating planting dates uh, and, and then also machinery to, to try to find a way that we can actually have our, our producers harvesting this equipment uh, in, in a kind of a safe and, and risk or lower risk way. Because our, our, one of our challenges right now is, is getting not only growers to grow this, but you know, going through and trying to harvest the grain crop, uh, they're worried about the wear and tear on their equipment, the fiber wrapping. We want to be able to provide them with realistic options, whether that's equipment that they, they have or, or, or have put away on the shelf and haven't used for some time. So we're trying to evaluate machinery um, and, and figure out ways that we can actually do this uh, at the farm level instead of just on a research trial where we're going out and perhaps using small plot equipment or hand harvesting, uh, which is what we had to do a lot in our first few years of production research to get a baseline. So it's all about scaling up. And I feel like moving forward, we're gonna continue to look at variety evaluations, best management practices, and then you know, equipment, harvesting equipment specifically is something that's uh, going to be a heavy focus moving forward. Have, have either of you, uh, Heather or Phil, run into ish, uh, production issues in terms of diseases or insects or those kind of things? I think early on uh, here in Wisconsin, we really haven't had them yet. We, you know, Japanese beetle hangs around a little bit, but uh, we haven't seen major, major problems on the pest management side. Anything emerging on that side of the world? Not so much with grain and fiber, although we do see like fusarium head light, head lice. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a new one. <laughs> fusarium head light. And um, on uh, some of the varieties, especially the shorter stature ones, and I, you know, I, I have a feeling the weeds also are a bigger issue in those, those varieties for us anyway, too. So I'm, I'm not sure if it's the variety itself or just sort of the stature and not drying out maybe as quickly as um, some of the other varieties that are taller, uh, maybe get more airflow, et cetera. But we seem to have that problem with certain varieties where the heads just completely rot um, and it'll make up a good portion of the plots. But outside of that, at least, you know, most of what we see with issues is in the in the real early season with establishment. Yeah, I, th I think the the what we've learned, I think Carl, and you can chime in here, but um, for grain and fiber, that well, I guess for for CBD as well, but especially for grain and fiber, that soil temperature really needs to be warm. Uh, we planted one plot three years, two years ago before Memorial Day. And that one struggled, it seemed like, all year. And if we wait till mid-June, we have a much better uh, germination. Uh, the, just the plant seems to be healthier. Uh, everything just seems to work better when, you, when you're patient and let that soil warm up. And without any you know, registered herbicides, letting those uh, seeds germinate, those weed seeds germinate, tilling it maybe a couple times, 
just to try to knock that seed bank down seems to be something that we've had a little bit better success, at least uh, here in Chippewa County, as well as I Carl, you've experienced it. But the, our other site is a Whirling Thunder site down at the Ho-Chunk Nation, which is an organic production system. And uh, they've they've observed that as well, where if they can get that plant out of the ground quick enough, it will kind of shade those weeds out. And this year, we didn't seem to have quite the trouble other than the, the wheel track right. between the plants yeah, seem to be the issue. You're right, Jerry. The, the two years that I planted, tried to plant early, both were disasters. We couldn't, the weeds were awful. Um, the, the, the plants germinated when it was warm. Then we had cool temperatures for 10 days and the weeds all grew, the hemp didn't. And uh, um, waiting till mid-June just seems to work way better for, for weed control and, and getting the plant going. Um, the other thing, we did have um, some uh, white mold this year in a couple of varieties that we noticed. Not not real heavy. We followed soybeans, so it, it's probably a natural that we would have uh, plenty of vector available. But uh, um, not that it would reduce yield or anything like that. It wasn't you know that bad. But we did have we did observe some of that this year. So the yeah, other, we've oh, go ahead, seen a little white mold too. Not a lot, but I, I would agree over time, certainly it could definitely contribute to issues with other crops that have white mold. You know, Jerry, you bring up a pretty good point about uh, planting. I think when we first started growing hemp, we were so focused with getting it in early to try to focus on biomass production. But I think, you know, at least in my own experience, the last few years, it can put, it can tolerate a bit of a later planting date and really establish just fine, continue to grow. I think looking at, flower, especially from a fiber production standpoint, flowering data is more important, I think, in a lot of ways and getting a good establishment than, you know, an early planting date itself is, is allowing it to, to grow. I've seen varieties that put up, you know, they're 10 feet tall and they put up almost half of that biomass in a two, three week period where it's just, it's about getting good establishment and allowing the crop to do what it, it needs to do. So. You know, I think that's just one more of those points of things that we've really started to understand, but it took time and experience to really understand that. And Phil, maybe you could comment on this too, but I found it really interesting yesterday. There was a national, uh, a national webinar on on hemp and and industrial hemp, mainly fiber, but there was a a couple of the states and a couple of companies that are really pushing that we need. We need herbicides. We need to make hemp Roundup ready so that we can apply Roundup to it. And part of me says this is kind of the beauty if we can put this in a conventional rotation that we can get away without using Roundup for a year. If we're growing corn, soybeans conventionally and we put in hemp, maybe we don't need Roundup and maybe we shouldn't rush in there. What are your thoughts, both you and Heather what are, and Jerry? What are your thoughts about that philosophy? I, I get a little concerned when we're going to do one more crop with Roundup. I mean, I think, you know, there's certainly a utility in these herbicides being used, but we've had to get creative with hemp the last few years because we haven't had those options, which for me as a researcher has been fun, is finding ways to kind of compete without having an herbicide option available. So, you know, that seed preparation and getting good establishment timing is very important, but we've had very good experiences with uh, getting a good crop established without an herbicide application and having it withstand the competition throughout the season. Um, which, you know, for me tells me there's a lot of opportunity there to continue that work and use hemp as a potential option, you know, like you say, for a, a cropping option without having to use those herbicides. So, 
you know, it's not a one size fit all. And I, I certainly think there's going to be room for incorporations of herbicides within the hemp production, but its ability and natural ability at higher densities to outcompete with weeds, if you get it established well, provides a tremendous opportunity to, to continue with those sort of production practices. Yeah, I think it's interesting when we see some of the research on hemp, especially fiber hemp focused on environment. Um, it, you know, there's uh, lower input numbers, et cetera. And all of that really has to do with how the plant's grown, not just because it's hemp. And so if we want to actually continue to promote that crop as a crop with these environmental benefits, I think we do have to really think about using hemp's capabilities to suppress weeds, which is a real thing. And, and we've all seen that if you get a good stand, I, I don't have any weed problems. Um, I can't name name or even think of a plot where we got a really good stand of hemp, where there was hardly anything in the understory, even when it started with a good number of weeds. And of course, you know, like has already been noted, there's always going to be a case where we're proven wrong and we could have really used that herbicide. But I, I agree. I think it's a real opportunity to help break some, you know, um, of those herbicide cycles and herbicide resistant weeds and you know um and if we can figure out how to get good stands regularly i don't i don't really see where we're gonna need them much yeah because my site's loaded with uh, water hemp and and uh, resistant water hemp and jerry has a touch of it up in his site too and i had none none in yeah. uh, in my plot this year even where it wasn't really really um aggressive uh some of the varieties some of the auto flower varieties not real aggressive i didn't have any in there i was amazed yeah you yeah, know, I, also make me think about the other end of this too is you know not just the production of the hemp itself but before and after uh from a cover crop standpoint depending on your use so if you're pushing <laughs> planting dates late for grain into june you have a lot of time to get you know that early spring biomass production from a previous planted cover crop um, or on the back end, if you're harvesting a fiber crop in August, let's just say here in Wisconsin or in Illinois, that provides you a tremendous opportunity for fall cover crop growth going into the winter. So I think there's a lot of questions we have about how it fits into production systems, particularly from a you know conservation cropping or a sustainable ag standpoint that uh, could certainly be addressed now that we kind of know which direction we want to take this. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with the next question. So a uh, great point, Phil, is where this fits in. Because we did some, you know, our planting here in Chippewa County mid-June mid and by mid-August, 60 days, you know, we were getting three ton of dry matter, maybe four ton of dry matter, just, just by checking to see what we had out there. And even from a qual feed quality standpoint, even though you can't legally feed it to anything, we did some forage tests just to see what's this stuff doing and we were getting uh, uh in 2020 or excuse me 2021 you know it was right there with alfalfa in terms of protein uh fiber was a little bit higher obviously but those kind of th parameters were actually pretty decent so timing like any other crop if you're going to get the quality you got to hit the, the right timing but like you said i think if you can capture that much tonnage in a short window or at least use it as a cover crop and then that opens that window up for that third crop to break up some of these cycles. Um, that's where we're starting to think what can what's next or how can we, you know, really adapt this crop into a 
kind of a three crop rotation with whether it's corn or soybeans or winter wheat or cover crop, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Heather. Well, I, I was actually thinking about the planning date um, piece that we were talking about. And early on, we did um, planning date studies three years in a row. And each year we had a different sort of successful planning date. You know, and what and the first year we grew hemp, it was third week of May. And the second year we grew hemp, it was the 6th of June. And the third year we did it, it was like the 10th of June or something. And it just, you know, I think it made me realize that, and I, and I have heard this from other growers in other regions, like mostly Canada, that the nice thing about hemp is that you do have uh, a wide planning window. There's a, a wider opportunity there versus maybe something like corn where, especially if we're growing for fiber and even for grain, we can still maximize yields if we plant into June. But if the conditions are right and the ground is warm and we've had an early spring or whatever it is and the moisture is perfect, then don't be afraid to plant on the third week of May either. And I think that's what I have learned over the years is that I got to keep my eye on the conditions, you know, the soil's got to be warm and it's got to be the conditions where I know, as Carl said, that seed's going to jump out of the ground as soon as possible. And there's not some cold forecast in the future. It wasn't just like an off week because when we've been unsuccessful is when it was warm. So we planted, but then it got cold and wet. And, and then we just had terrible, terrible stands. So I think it's nice that there's options, a wider planning window option, but people have to be thinking about the conditions more so, I think, because it's not as forgiving as some of our other crops, I don't think. So as, as we move along in the, the regulation side of things, we think about the Wisconsin has moved under the, no longer has their own program. We've moved under the USDA program. Um, where do you see that you know, in your crystal ball? Where's, where do you see the regulation side of things headed uh, from that standpoint, Phil? That's just going to be a, an adjustment for, for growers, I think, to, to really understand you know, the rules and regulations that they're required to follow. It's just kind of a whole new system of, of, of the USDA taking over. So where you get your testing done, who is coming out is is going to be handled differently and so i really would encourage growers to make sure they are understanding the federal rules that we are you know expected to follow i think it's better now that it has been that we are starting to get on some sort of universal language even with the state plans in some cases like illinois doing their own thing um, and not following the federal guidelines there's still a lot of that language is 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 consistent which is gonna be a, a step in the right direction, I think, for growers ac across the country, really, and for, for processors as well. So, you know, I think in the long run, these regulation changes are, are needed to get us where we need to be. So we're all kind of in agreement. And I can speak to that coming from Illinois, where we were what was considered a Delta nine state from a compliance standpoint for the first, you know, three years of hemp being legal here um, in the States. And that caused a bunch of issues for growers from a compliance standpoint, from interstate commerce, where, you know, they're on one side of state lines and it's compliant hemp and they cross over into another state and it's, it's technically, you know, marijuana trafficking. Um, so I think 
we're starting to get to a point where a lot of those, uh, the language is gonna be on, on the same level. And I think that's gonna be a benefit to everybody. In addition to that, I think the research exemptions that are going to be allowed for universities to conduct hemp research are going to be, you know, very beneficial by allowing us to do specific hemp production research under a, you know, a very specific license that will eliminate some of those challenges that our traditional growers have to do uh, and follow so we can continue to do hemp production research and figure out what's working and what's not. Our situation is the same in Vermont. We were a Delta 9 state too. But um, now we've, you know, been turned over to the USDA, which sounds like a lot of states are heading that direction. And in our state now, recreational cannabis or marijuana is also legal. So that was part of the reasoning for the state to turn their hemp program over to the USDA and kind of focus on their recreational program administration instead. I think for growers, at least here, you know, that's what makes this not the same as so many other crops is that it's still regulatory, even if it's legal to grow it. And that still, I think, is a pretty big barrier for a lot of growers. There's just more red tape. Um, and it just, you know, for so many people, especially I think getting now that we're moving into fiber and grain, you know, what's the added value to them for growing those crops? You know, is the market such that it makes sense to go get your fingerprints taken and like, you know, just go through all this trouble because you're going to, you know, the payout is there and it's worth the, all the baloney. I shouldn't call it baloney, but, you know, I mean, that's what I hear from growers like, mm -hmm. eh, you know, I just, I don't have time for that. We only have like one fingerprinting place in the entire state of Vermont. <laughs> so it's also like. You know, it's a small state, so maybe that's irrelevant, but it's a pain, you know, so that that still remains a barrier. It'll be interesting if I had my magic ball to see what happens with the new farm bill. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of pressure being put on some of the hemp rules and regulations. It'll be interesting to see what happens here in, in the new farm bill. If yeah, any that's, of a, that that's an excellent point that is yeah. coming up and that'll be, yeah. that'll be something to watch. Yeah, you read yeah. my mind, Heather. I was going to ask if you were appointed to the study committee for that part yeah. of the farm bill. Yeah, but it's important. And, you know, I think, again, for this, for hemp to really, I think, take off, especially in these crops that are, they will be lower value. It's not going to be like CBD that if they become commodities, why is anybody going to do it if, if, unless the payout's really much higher? It still is risky. And it, and that was the discussion in the the webinar yesterday was yeah. that crop insurance and all of these kind of things. I know a few people that work at some lending institutions in Chippewa County, and they basically said we they don't really give out loans to anybody that's producing it. Just even if it's you know they got all the paperwork in, they just said we're not taking the the risk of because we don't know if it's yeah with a crop failure or whatever it is. So. Uh, they want to treat it. Uh, I know the goal from yesterday's meeting was let's try to get it to be a commodity. But when you're competing with corn and soybeans with the prices they are, it's going to take another correction in those markets. Or if those markets crash, then there'll be that renewed interest, I think, where you start to see farmers say, okay, I can give up some land because I'm not going to make money on corn and soybeans. But Or there's an environmental benefit that's that's proven along the way. I think outside of just like, you know, the um, the challenges from, uh, you know, going in, getting your thumbprint, 
going through all the whole licensing is, uh, and then the also the challenges of the actual market of going somewhere with this crop is, is from a compliance standpoint, it's expensive to get this material tested, you know, whether it depends on the state or, you know, the, the tribe or the federal program you're under, but to pay to somebody to come out to sample your crop, to go in and get it tested, and then to prove it's compliant, it can be very expensive uh, depending on where you are. And so, you know, I think something that may be uh, an opportunity moving forward that was written into the farm bill and then hopefully will get expanded on in the future is the idea of performance-based sampling in a way that we can be a certification uh, and, and, and establishing varieties that have been shown to be compliant over time that are tried and true, I think will be a significant way to reduce input costs for growers um, and kind of be one of those big barriers to production. So, you know, that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on, you know, moving forward. I know some states have done a successful performance-based sampling methodology that has been approved. And that I think that'll be something to keep an eye on. Um, at the state or federal level for basically finding varieties that are going to be compliant and not have to follow the same stringent rules that um, you were forced to when uh, proving that a variety is compliant. Well, this is always great information. Before we wrap up, I think if, uh, if you could both just give me some background on any new publications, resources, things like that. Uh, we have our cutting edge uh, webpage uh, that you can get the podcasts on. And we have, I think we have over 4,000 subscribers now, right, Carl, somewhere in that ballpark? Yeah, it's somewhere in that range, yes. So I know as uh, for impact statements, Heather, and extension, I'll send yeah. you those numbers. So All you right, can, uh, <laughs> <Here> we go. <laughs> but uh, I know we've got new web pages being developed, and there's always research papers out there and those kind of things. Uh, so I'll start with you, Phil. Uh, what's happening in terms of the resources for any growers or processors that might be interested in, in investigating the hemp industry? Well, I'll start off by saying that we have, uh, are developing a emerging crops webpage for hemp. It's going to be basically the clearinghouse for all University of Wisconsin hemp production resources. Um, if you Google emerging crops Wisconsin, it should take you there. Just a quick interruption to say that the emerging crops website is not live yet, but we're working hard to bring it to the finish line and we'll let you know on the Cutting Edge podcast once we've gone public with it. Okay, back to the show. But that's going to be the, the place to go to look for all of our research reports from the last few years for grain and fiber production, uh, as well as high cannabinoid hemp. Uh, variety trials from 2022 are going to be up there at some point this fall slash winter. Uh, uh, we're still working on those, so keep an eye out for those things. But what I will point out is we have a lot of opportunities for collaboration, which you know, outside of our production resources are really going to be a driving force to get people to, to work with us here. Um, if you're interested in conducting any grain, fiber, or high cannabinoid hemp trials, we have various grant opportunities that are going to allow us to provide seed and costs of testing to participate in these projects. Uh, and for our grain and fiber trials may even provide a nice stipend for participating um, in those. So if you're interested in, in doing any of that, just reach out to me and I'd be happy to get you that information. Also, if you're aware of any feral hemp collect feral hemp sites across the Midwest, uh, as part of uh, our larger effort at the national level to collect this germplasm to incorporate it into our breeding programs and just protect this, you know, feral wild hemp, we need it. Uh, so please let us know. That's going to be one of our bigger projects, our national feral hemp collection, and then our disease survey. So if you're a hemp grower and you're experiencing disease or pest pressure and you have questions. 
um, you can work with us to get those, uh, those answers. We can do diagnostics visually or submit them to our, our diagnostic lab and we can work with you to get those, um, get those answers. So a lot of opportunities for collaboration. I guess I'll just end it by saying, if you're a hemp producer in the region, come take a look at our website. It's gonna have a ton of production resources, not just from Wisconsin, but from all over the country. And it's gonna be the most up-to-date place for all of our hemp production <coughs> we have available. Thanks, Phil. Anything on your end, Heather, that's new coming out? Nope. I just she put up our website. I made a slide. <laughs> I made a slide, but it's backwards. All right. So, so Google. This is a podcast slide. Do people see it? Podcast. Can they see it? No. They're just Probably listening. not. We can oh, dang it. We'll put it on the website. Yeah, the, well, the, right. We we have um, a website and there's a, there is a hemp section to that. We we do post all our research every year. So everything that we're finding, we're sharing immediately. And then we have lots of videos. We've done a ton of webinar series focused on all you know aspects of hemp and kind of gearing up to do our winter hemp conference, which we've done for quite a while now. And I think we're gonna keep it virtual um, even past COVID to draw in you know a wider audience. Um, especially now that sort of hemp grower numbers are a little bit down or a lot down, um, making sure that we can get information out broadly uh, remains important. So, yeah. Great. And Jerry, we should mention that, uh, well, mention two things. First of all, that the people that know Jerry and I, we did pass our FBI fingerprint. <laughs> yeah. um, and so people can feel comfortable about that. And secondly, we are also planning on doing, we called it a virtual field day a couple of years ago when we did on hemp. And we're going to try to bring that back this winter also. And and uh, we, we may be hitting you up, Heather. You never know. So expect yeah. a call or email. <laughs> well, again, any other final comments? I really appreciate Phil and uh, Heather for taking time to do another podcast with us today. And uh, hope uh, we can cross paths this winter as we do yeah. the field days and virtual events and things like that. It's been great. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.